It might be considered a niche, but the area known as femtech is booming. From reproductive to mental health, there's been a dramatic rise in new products and services developed for women over the past few years. It's a market that some analysts say could top $60 billion this decade. And venture capitalists are taking notice with a significant wave of new investment activity. Women, they drive our families, drive our economy. The number of working women today is about to surpass the number of working men in the United States. So, you know, every incentive you could possibly want to serve the well-being and health of the female identifying population, well, it's acutely there. It's acutely there. Welcome to another edition of 2025 Tomorrow Today. I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President with Northern Trust. In this episode, we're continuing our new series of conversations with leading venture capitalists about some unique areas that interest them. And today we're focusing on some incredibly important areas, diversity and inclusion, and a wildly popular, but still relatively overlooked category. Femtech doesn't get the widespread mainstream media attention as other areas of health investing, but investors are starting to understand the opportunity, considering the role that women play in making healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. That's why I'm so glad we're joined by one of Seattle's leading venture capitalists, Julie Sandler is the Managing Director at Pioneer Square Labs. Yeah, John, for those who don't know Julie, we could spend a long time just talking about her accomplishments. She led PSL's venture capital arm for the past four years, and before that, worked at Madrona Venture Group as a partner. She's won several awards, including GeekWire's Geek of the Year, and she's a leader when it comes to diversity and equity and promoting women in tech. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Julie, one of the areas you've promoted quite a bit over the years is diversity and the continued challenge to get more women into positions of leadership. But I'm also really interested in learning more and talking about your investment philosophy around the area of femtech, companies creating new health and wellness products and technologies catering primarily to women. On the surface, it certainly makes sense considering women represent half the population. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, over, over half the population is born biologically female, but even more of the population identifies as female or gender non-binary. Um, you know, women control 80% of all consumer spending. They control, they drive, you know, 80% of all healthcare decisions. And at the individual level, they'll spend 30% more on healthcare than men do. So in particular, yes, like female centered digital innovation is um, a huge interest area of mine, but even more specifically as of late, this category of femtech is increasingly interesting. And femtech differentiated from sort of female-centered innovation is focused on health, wellness, well-being, specifically of individuals who identify as female or gender non-binary. Um, you know, my investment background, you know, spans everything from, you know, consumer to enterprise and lately even mostly a B2B SaaS investor, but have become just super intrigued simultaneously with, with femtech and, you know, a number of our investments at PSL touch femtech in, in some pretty interesting ways. We'll talk a little bit more about how you got interested in it and how the category is evolving or if we should even call yeah, it a category. I, mean, I, I think it's fair to call it a category, you know, women, they drive our families, drive our economy. The number of working women today is about to surpass the number of working men in the United States. So, you know, 
every incentive you could possibly want to serve the well-being and health of the female identifying population, well, it's acutely there. It's acutely there. Um, but yet, if you look at digital health as a category, only 3% of the financings in the past decade have been for startups that address the unique health and wellness needs of women. And specifically, when I talk about the health and wellness needs of women, I'm talking about um, certainly disease, which is top of mind for a lot of folks, you know, um, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancers, but also um, heart disease. Women suffer from heart disease more than men. Depression, same thing. Eating disorders, sexual trauma, sexual health. And then you've got, of course, the full reproductive life cycle, puberty, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, and then just general holistic wellness. And you know, all of these profound experiences, some terrific, some terrible that women uniquely have, they drive so much operational intensity and revenue for the healthcare system. They have deep population health impact. They drive like the literal growth of our society in many cases. And at the same time, there's just like shockingly disturbing healthcare inequities. And that gets magnified when you look, especially at women of color and LGBTQ+. Um, but it's an investment category, to your point, that is growing very quickly. About, um, I think about a billion dollars went into, quote unquote, femtech as a category last year. It, it's still this wildly underserved and, and wildly massive opportunity for investors still. Who are some of the trailblazers in, in femtech? What companies, investors, founders do you admire or do you think are, are doing it right? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. We're really fortunate here in Seattle that we've got some some trailblazers in that category. Um, two that I'm a fan of, one, uh, Genev in town focused on um, the menopausal life cycle for women. Um, another, Bloom up in Vancouver here in the Northwest focused on uh, young women dealing with, with puberty, both the psychological and, and physical sides of that. Um, and in our portfolio, we're thrilled to have, you know, a number of companies that that speak the themes in, in femtech too. Um, you know, women are uh, nearly twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with depression. Uh, and of course, you know, face a unique set of, of mental health issues such as, you know, miscarriage, sexual harassment, eating disorders. And, you know, one in five women, um, you know, have experienced sexual violence of some type. Um, one of our companies, uh, June Care, uh, is focused on young women in particular and the unique challenges that young women in North America in particular face. Um, and most of their clients are young women. And they integrate uh, teletherapy support with uh, programming and exercises that connect young women to their families, to their support systems at school. Um, and it's been proven so far to be pretty efficacious. So I think holistic health focused on different segments of the female population is super ripe with opportunities. And it's been neat to see the role that the Pacific Northwest has been playing and, and leading it across a number of those themes. And I mean, as you as you reflect on the narrative arc of your tenure as a VC, I mean, from 2011 onward at Madrona, I mean, when what are the catalysts for um, the general sense changing around these type of investments. I mean, obviously they weren't they weren't being made ten years ago to this extent. When did you see things shift, um, and and kind of why? What 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 were the catalysts for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there there's no denying that over the course of the past five years, there's been a major shift in terms of how 
frequently um, the needs of, of women uh, have been brought to the forefront in investment conversations. Um, that certainly was magnified by the Me Too movement, but many other factors driving that as well. Um, there's been a lot of attention paid to uh, medical research in particular and how focused it is, um, or frankly isn't is, on the health of women. And um, when you've got um, an area like that that has just been so historically, repeatedly, and sustainedly underserved and underinvested over generations, that creates opportunity. Um, I'll give you like a really personal story that's um, that's an example here. Um, so I, I, I had multiple pregnancies in my life and every time that I've been pregnant, I basically know that I'm pregnant before a medical test could tell me that I'm pregnant because I have this really odd, super absurd thing happen. I have this sharp pain in my right foot. So random, so weird, so strange. And I asked my doctor and, and she said, look, Julie, like I'll tell you, I work with about 150 uh, pregnant women every year. And I'd say about 100% of the time, there is something that just happens during a pregnancy that does not totally have an official medical explanation. Like I have like hypotheses, I have conjectures, but like conjectures for what it what what is, but there's not actually a ton of medical research that fully and consummately supports why different things happen to women over the course of pregnancy. But yeah, it's like, it's a hundred percent. And you're telling me, you know, all of these women that you work with 100% have something happen that is just kind of not fully explained a hundred percent. I mean, aren't we on to something here? Like I don't, I don't follow baseball much, but is a thousand a good batting average? Like there's something here. Right. And so on planet earth, you've got 7.8 billion data points of people who exist because someone was pregnant and how is there not research into the experience of pregnancy? So she looked at me and she said, it's women's health. Like women's health is just underfunded. And so you've got this huge array of problems that gets created by this lack of research, lack of funding. And when you have a lot of problems, you have a ton of opportunity. So um, great strides over the past several years. And I'm optimistic for many more in the years to come. Julie, just piggybacking on that question, how much of the problem or the lack of investment is the basic fact that the venture capital industry is largely dominated by white men? Uh, there was a stat out from last year that said 65% of venture firms still have no single female general partners uh, on, on their team. And I mean, you're still a rarity. I know it's changing and there have been strides in the last couple of years here, but it seems like that's part of the problem, right? That you just have men who are providing the checks and this is not an area that they've typically wanted to invest in. To your point, yes, there have been positive strides over the past couple of years. Yes, there is such a long, long way to go on this front. Uh, also to your point, I think if any of these uh, health and wellness issues that I mentioned, whether it was related to the reproductive life cycle, whether it was related to disease, if any of these things ended up being things that men struggled with, you wouldn't see a lack of funding in these areas. We'd know everything. It would, there's no question. You can look at sort of the parallel examples that impact the male and male identifying population and see a ton of companies, a ton of funding, a ton of investment there. So um, absolutely, that is a part of it. I am heartened by the fact that a lot of the leading firms that I respect and admire that 
um, have you know, for many years not had any type of gender diversity on their uh, leadership teams or partnership teams begin to invest more aggressively and see it as an imperative to invest more aggressively there, both gender diversity, racial diversity, ethnic diversity. Um, but I think, um, you know, more and more, the more firms do that, the more funding we're going to see in this category. And by the way, all of these, all of these areas that I've mentioned, um, you could say that in most cases, women of color and LGBTQ populations are most adversely affected by a lack of offerings, a lack of solutions in these, in these spaces. Julie, you've been talking about femtech largely in the, in the bucket of the larger bucket of health tech, um, does femtech expand outside of that? And if so, what are the examples of, of that? And are there interesting opportunities that you're looking at in those areas, maybe outside of the, the health tech component of it? Yeah, well, so femtech, um, from a nomenclature perspective in the investment community, specifically refers to health, wellness, well-being holistically of female identifying individuals. Um, that's that's the category at large. So yes, a lot of what I have invested in over the course of my career um, have been companies that are digitally oriented that serve women in particular as a population. Uh, but femtech as a category specifically uh, connotes health, wellness, and well-being. Got it. And so, t- taking a deeper dive into that, it, historically, that's a hard place to be investing because of, I mean. Health tech is is, and I know it's changing, but it seems to be one of maybe the last frontiers that has really been digitized. Um, and so you do see just a lot of momentum generally towards uh, investment in health tech here in the last couple of years, especially with the move towards telehealth during the pandemic and whatnot. Um, it is it a hard area to find opportunities in, uh, just because of the entrenched systems. Uh, and how are you how are you how are you trying to get a, around that in terms of these big behemoth uh, regulated industries that are hard to navigate in, usually not the places that VCs like to play. Or maybe it is because they it's, can disrupt them and uh, and and do <laughs> do it in a really interesting way. yeah, most most investments in digital health these days, especially if a company is selling into health system to require uh, you know a real uh, a real appetite for a big swing. They're going to be more capital intensive. Um, sales motions are a little bit slower moving. Um, things tend to be a little bit more binary at each individual um, contract level as you engage with the health system. But what's interesting to see is femtech at large uh, seems to be focusing more on the consumer as buyer and decision maker rather than selling solutions into healthcare system. Certainly not exclusively, but most opportunities I'm seeing um, are focused on that element. Um, I'll give you an example. I think um, uh, you know the term femtech itself is a bit odd in that it overlooks the complexity in the term female these days, right? Femtech it overlooks largely to date the LGBTQ population. Um, and this is a community where um, the majority of individuals report facing discrimination when they seek quality healthcare. And thus, they are more likely to not seek healthcare when it's needed and thus have worse health outcomes. 
And then, you know, when you add the amount of, of violence that in particular transgender individuals, trans, transgender people of color face, it compounds that effect even more. Most people today and most investors for that matter, look at the LGBT plus community as a market size challenge on the consumer side, which is really interesting to me. They'll say, you know, well, we'll look you know, individuals who identify as LGBTQ plus comprise 5% of the U.S. population. But if you look at that number and how it's reported, that number is a total fallacy. First of all, not only does it require self-reporting, but even more notably, when you break it down by generation, the statistics bowl you over. Um, I read a report by Rock Health that shows that 65% of millennials identify as exclusively heterosexual and cisgender, and thus 35% identify as you know, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And the numbers will floor you when you hear about Gen Z. For Gen Zers, 48% identify as exclusively heterosexual and cisgender, which means the majority of Gen Z, the majority of Gen Z reports identifying as LGBTQ+. So, and you can imagine why each generation you're seeing so many more people empowered to both identify and also report identifying as LGBTQ+, but so few investors are paying attention to this. And frankly, I think if you're an investor and you're ignoring this and you're focused on consumer opportunities, you are crazy. And by the way, over 70% of the LGBTQ population identifies as female. So solutions that support this community to find care, to access safe care, to approach more holistic forms of care, it's this massive opportunity today and even, even more so tomorrow and in future generations. I mean, those are amazing statistics. I've never heard those statistics. It's incredible. Um, working backwards, which I guess is self-referential because I'm going to be referring to Amazon here in a second. But, um, you know, whether it relates to uh, gender ID, et cetera, and the concept of representation in tech, broadly speaking, a lot of founders come from corporate America, especially in Seattle. You have Microsoft and Amazon. I know that's true everywhere. Um, what things can corporate America do to help promote those representations or what are they not doing now that can lead to more founders, more investors? Yeah, I, I think um, it begins with hiring and shifts to advancement from there. Um, so I, I've been heartened by the fact that um, most leading edge organizations these days, including in tech, look at diversity as a mandate now when it comes to their hiring pipelines. Um, that's, it's phenomenal to see. And, uh, you see, um, even on, um, you know, HR teams that are focused on talent acquisition, there's specific individuals where their job and focus is to ensure the diversity of that pipeline all the way through the pipeline. That's huge. The second side of that is advancement and pay and support. And as we all know, from a big company perspective, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of controversy in terms of how. Uh, large companies, including in tech, have handled diversity across their workforces and challenges and tensions that exist um, in, in that across their workforces. But it is a part of the conversation more and more now. Uh, I suspect over the course of the coming years, we're going to see uh, a lot more women empowered within the context of those organizations to advance to the higher levels in a way that we just haven't seen in previous generations. That is great for the entrepreneurial ecosystem, to your point. 
because a lot of times these companies are nurturing grounds for the entrepreneurial talent that either makes to leap to start things themselves or to join at senior levels of you know the next generation of great innovative companies. And especially here in Seattle, we see Amazon and Microsoft making great strides on that front. And I see it, frankly, even in the number of women entrepreneurs that I meet with on a monthly basis. Julie, how important are initiatives like the effort in California to mandate women on boards or creating more diverse boards? And do you think that those efforts will take root throughout the country and be mandated on a federal level? And I and I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you would go about doing that. I, I'm personally of the perspective that um, positive steps driven by the spirit of that rather than the mandate of that tend to be better for organizations. In other words, an organization needs to first realize the business case for this before they have to, you know, take steps. Because if you're just being mandated to do that, it's like, okay, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. But what's more important is the conversation around it and understanding that no, like organizations that have women that have people of color on their boards, they perform better. They outperform their peers. They, they competitively look at that as an advantage. And if you don't grok that at the most senior level of an organization and you're just kind of checking the box, it's going to be difficult to see the macro change across all levels of that organization and the way that we need so I think the the sort of education and realization around it is going to be more important than the actual mandate at a state or at a state level or beyond. And how much do you think it's taking root that 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 movement you're speaking of? Because I can imagine some companies are looking at the numbers and are jumping on board and and they see the positive attributes of it, while others um, aren't going to put that in into practice. So. What happens to those organizations that don't put it into practice in the next 5, 10, 15 years based on some of the data you just provided? Yeah, you know, I I think if certainly 15 years from now, if you aren't on, on top of this, you're you're probably operating in the, the backwaters of your industry because it just shows that you are not accessing the best talent out there. That's that's really what it is. You are you are not accessing that talent. And if you aren't able to advance or attract that talent at the you know uppermost echelons of your organization, then by definition, you are missing out on opportunity. Um, human capital, um, despite the advances that we're seeing in technology, is going to continue to be so central to the success of every company in our industry and beyond. And if you are missing out on half the population or you're either consciously or, or subliminally not deliberately, not not attracting talent um, that has been underrepresented in your industry for a long time, you're going to fall behind. It's um, it's at every level of the organization. Have 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 either of you heard the the YouTube mobile upload story before? Is that is that one familiar to you? This is one of my favorites on this topic. So, um, years ago, YouTube was looking to launch a product for mobile devices that allowed individuals to film something on their phone and then instantly from you know the app upload to YouTube. And they spent a ton of money on this, a lot of testing, you know, millions and millions of dollars and they launch it. And the product goes out into the universe and you know the the product manager is super surprised to see that as these videos get uploaded, 
about 10% of them are being uploaded upside down. And it's the videos in landscape mode. And, and, and it's just like, huh, like why are 10% of the videos being uploaded upside down? Do you guys have any idea why that might be the case? Left hand or right hand? Left handed people, when you're turning your phone into landscape mode, you're more likely to turn it left. And if you're right handed, you're more likely to turn it right to film. But they had no one testing at the organization who was left handed. And so they had no way of knowing that this was a problem. And so you take that small example from YouTube years ago and you apply it across the, the different layers of the organization. And then you imagine something as powerful as a demographic group that represents 50% of the population or more, um, or, or, um, or, or a population that um, reflects you know, 15 or 20% of the population as you look at different racial and ethnic groups. It's mind blowing that you would not invest in this because one, there's cost to pay later if you don't, and it's missed opportunity on the front lines as well. Well, how about, um, you know, as it relates to the pandemic, a lot's been written about it being a disproportionate headwind uh, for female founders, female executives, et cetera. Um, you're looking at deals all the time. You're talking with founders. Is that something that's um, maybe been overhyped or is that a real thing? Can you, can you talk through your own experience and what you're seeing from, from founders about how the pandemic's been, um, particularly challenging for, for, uh, for them? Yes. Um, well, so, you know, I, I will say that, uh, one out of every three of the companies that we, we spin out of PSL is, is female founded. And in most of those cases, female CEO, uh, and so both connecting with founders that are in our portfolio, as well as, you know, founders that we're, we're meeting with uh, out in the community that are building businesses, um, what you're describing feels very real. Um, certainly the pandemic has impacted uh, women generally in the workforce, but especially women starting companies more than it has men. Um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that often the default in the context of a family that is dealing with, uh, you know, no in-person schooling, not adequate childcare access. It's often uh, you know, women that end up bearing the brunt of that. Uh, and so you see uh, a number of women that were thinking about starting companies that are just saying, hey, I need another six months. I need another eight months to do this. I'm hearing that a lot. Uh, for organizations that you know, already had started and you've got you know, women on the leadership team, they're saying it's just really challenging because now not only am I running a company, but you know, my partner and I were tackling homeschooling as well for the first time. And then you add that to the fact that workforce reductions have uh, disproportionately impacted women more than they have men. And you suddenly have a pipeline for the next several years that's been impacted too. So it's a very real thing, um, both from a numbers perspective and even just from you know, the, the anecdotal perspective as you talk with each founder. And it's been disheartening. Um, at the same time, there is this counter effect where you're seeing increased appetite from investors to widen the aperture of the communities that they're tackling to grow their top of funnel, their top of their top of pipeline for new deal opportunities. And I'm hoping that as we come out of this pandemic, you'll see an increase more and more, hopefully, dear Lord, an accelerating increase in the amount of funding going to founders of color and women founders too. Julie, before we wrap, I would love to just get your perspective looking out four or five years. 
what excites you the most about investing in this category of femtech and what are your hopes for that category? Yeah, um, my hope is that the emergence of huge successes in this category lead to the natural investment in better medical research, supporting women's health, particularly women's health across the reproductive life cycle. And I hope that the success of this category means that women are able to move through these acute moments, these acute experiences of their lives that can be disruptive to their careers or their entrepreneurial journeys and be better able to tackle all the different pieces of their life, their health, their families, their work, their entrepreneurial undertakings in the case of, of aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think uh, you know having a few winners in this category will also pave the way for more women to notice problems that they're experiencing either at the consumer level, the patient level, or the health system level and say, you know what, this is a total greenfield opportunity. I'm going to start something for myself here and uh, I'll be excited to, to back them when they do. Absolutely. Well, Julie Sandler, thank you so much for joining us here today on 2025 Tomorrow Today. You bet. Thank you both so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So Jordan, what do you think in terms of femtech as one of the next big investment categories? It certainly has been underserved. That's right. I mean, I, th I thought it was really fascinating to hear her contextualize it. Y you know, I, I wonder how I've lived everywhere in the country. I've literally done a belt loop around the country in terms of where I, I've lived. And I wonder how much our, you know, Seattle's local culture plays into the success she's had in finding these companies and helping these founders. Uh, we have a really cool culture here of, you know, kind of forward looking thought, inclusivity. And, you know, I, I wonder how regional it will be, because it seems to have a lot to do with just the ethos of a region and, you know, what types of things are normative. Yeah, that's a good point. I think things like this could start out regionally. But when you look at the mega trends and the fact that this area is so underserved, it, it's something that would eventually, I think, spread uh, nationwide and globally eventually. And I, I think there's huge opportunity. I've, I've been saying for the last couple of years, I think there's a huge opportunity in this just cross section of technology and healthcare. And you see a lot of money flowing into that. And femtech is is a big component of that, that probably, you know, it hasn't gotten the investment attention that other areas have just under the health tech umbrella, which is massive. Uh, so I can undersee, I can see why uh, folks are looking to invest in this aggressively. Yeah. I mean, there is such a richness of opportunity. I mean, I'd, you know, not being that familiar with it, hearing her talk through it, it was just you know, at the, as she's talking, I, I was just, you know, my mind is is whizzing with opportunities. It, it seems like what what might need to happen is a local company, in fact, in femtech becomes a billionaire. A bunch of of you know the founding team gets really wealthy on exit, and then they all start companies. You know, in, in the same vertical, they have the experience, they have the connections. It feels like it needs, you know, like what Twitter was to the Bay Area, where you know, all of a sudden you have 200 founders, um, something like that. Absolutely agree. I mean, that sort of energy and activity would spark a lot more uh, entrepreneurial uh, ideas for sure. And I think, but that's that's not just a, 
a regional thing. I think that could happen for a company that is in the femtech space that just a billion dollar exit that, you know, 10 of the angels or VCs that are involved in the deal make a lot of money and the founders and early employees do. Uh, and I think, I don't think it has to be a regional thing, but um, boy, yeah, I think most industries could use something like that. And there's certainly opportunity in this space for something to arise. It is really cool to sort of see it being formed as well. Uh, the companies that she's talking about are, are clearly still, you know, be, you know, coming, coming up. And so, you know, if you, if you go back 10 years and you look at some of the software companies, et cetera, that were being founded then, and then juxtaposed against today, you can just see those, tr you can just see all the trends unfolding and the numbers that she's describing in terms of the, the industry size and the opportunity, I feel like if you extrapolate it forward, you can just see um, what's being built now in the future being just prolific. Yeah. We didn't confer beforehand on questions, but you know, you stole one of my questions. <laughs> you told me you one of mine too. Actually. Oh, did I? Which one did I steal of yours? I'm trying to remember. Um, it was like the third question you asked and I was so excited to ask it. Oh, Actually. I had, well, I had the same feeling. Mine was, I, I really wanted to, and I'm so glad you asked it, dive into the, the pandemic impact on women leaving the workplace and what that means in the entrepreneurial ranks. I was, I thought that was really interesting to hear her perspective on that. So that's the, that's the one you took from me, but I'm glad you, glad we went there. We each scooped one another on, yeah. on a question. <laughs> well, it's been such a, it's been such a big story and it, such a big story. I always wonder if it crosses that inflection point of, you know, it just has kind of a feedback loop of stories get written about stories. And, you know, I, I wondered what was really there, but hearing her confirm it and passionately. So, you know, just confirm for me, like, wow, you know, th this is a big deal. And the headwinds are, are tremendous. The outcomes, as you read those stories are, I mean, are obvious. I mean, uh, women are just having a, a, a much harder time in the pandemic for the reason she described. Yeah. And certainly leaving the workforce. I was curious, though, whether eventually it would lead to more entrepreneurial activity, because as people leave the workplace and then they rejoin it after schooling gets back, do they rejoin in a traditional fashion or do they rejoin with a, a newfound passion and idea and, and I think there could be opportunity there that you see a host, a, a percentage, you know, it's obviously a small percentage of people that are going to go and start a company in anything, but perhaps it, it could be a spark that, uh, you know, looking at it half glass full, that it could eventually uh, end up maybe leading to that billion dollar exit of a company in this space. It's a great point. I mean, yeah, people are reevaluating everything. If you get a fresh look at what you're, you know, you want to be investing your time in. I mean, yeah, no, no question. And just the world has changed. It feels like everything has an opportunity to be reinvented now after March, 2020. I mean, all of a sudden now everything gets a little bit of a fresh look. Well, I thought it was a fascinating discussion and uh, Jordan, thanks for joining in on it. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of 2025 Tomorrow Today. I'm John Cook, co-founder of GeekWire. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President at Northern Trust. To make sure you don't miss an episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts or at geekwire.com. Thanks for listening. 2025 Tomorrow Today is produced and edited by Josh Kearns and Cypress Point Podcasting for GeekWire Studios. It's intended for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as investment advice. 
There may be some overlap between businesses mentioned and the holdings of Northern Trust clients, our hosts, and panelists. 